Okay, well, please turn me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And just as we sang there from Genesis 22, where the prediction and the promise of the blessing to the nations uh, through the seed of Abraham. So Hebrews is describing to us how this actually uh, comes about, this transaction that takes place, and how it is that we have the blessing of God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what he is dealing with all throughout the book of Hebrews, but here in chapter 7, as he's talking about the issue of the high priest and how all of the blessings of God come to us through the ministry of Christ as high priest over the household of faith. So let's read Hebrews 7, and we'll read verses 26 to 28, but our focus will be verse 26 today. Hebrews 7, 26 says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, grateful and, Lord, standing in amazement and wonder, Lord, that you would design a way in which those who have rebelled against you might be restored again into your favor, Lord, might be reconciled to you and be brought back into your family. Lord, we know that the separation that has taken place between God and man was no fault of your own. Lord, you are faithful in all things. Lord, you are a good and a gracious benefactor to man. Lord, you are our creator. And Lord, everything that you have done toward us is always good and righteous and holy. And yet, Lord, we find ourselves at great distance from you, not because of any failing on your part, but all because of our own sin. Lord, we have rebelled against you. Lord, we have fled from your presence. And Lord, we have created this chasm that exists between God and man. Lord, which we are completely incapable of bridging. And so, Lord, left to our own devices, we know that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Lord, we are under your wrath. And Lord, that there is only an expectation of judgment and of a fury that will consume the adversaries. And that you would make a way in which such rebels could be brought back into your communion. Lord, is a testimony of your wisdom, Lord, of your goodness and of your grace. And Lord, that you would supply the mediator by which this would take place. Lord, teach us today more and more of how our only hope for salvation is found in the one person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, how you have provided so graciously for us, Lord, a way in which we can be brought back into your family and that we can have your favor and your blessing. Lord, may we have an even greater understanding and a greater confidence, Lord, in the mediation of Jesus Christ, Lord, as he stands as high priest over the household of faith. And Lord, we pray that today our worship, Lord, the prayers that we have offered, Lord, the 
hymns and the psalms that we have sung. And Lord, now the hearing of your word. Lord, will you receive all of it on the basis of your son, Jesus Christ, as our high priest who is now interceding for us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, here we are approaching the end of Hebrews chapter 7, which has been devoted to proving the superiority of Jesus Christ as high priest over and above those high priests that were established by the law from the family of Aaron. After the entrance of sin into the world, it is necessary for sinners to have a high priest if they are going to worship God and draw near to Him. The only way that sinners can have access to God, the only way that they can have any blessing or favor from God, is through the ministry of a high priest. And this was clearly displayed since the entrance of sin into the world, and it was displayed under the law of Moses in two ways. First, by the institution of the high priest from the family of Aaron. All of Israel's worship, everything that they did was done under this ministry of the high priest. And Aaron's priesthood was not something that Moses invented or that Aaron invented that they thought was a good idea, but was something that was established by God. God is the one who established the office of priesthood, and God was the one that called Aaron and his sons to fill this office during the Old Covenant. And it was essential for his worship. The sacrifices for sins, this is an integral part of the worship of Israel. And these sacrifices were not performed by the average people, but they were only performed by the high priest. And especially the yearly sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was performed by the high priest on behalf of the people. So the institution of high priests was a clear evidence of the importance of the office. Secondly, there was also in the law prohibitions and severe penalties for any who sought to perform the duties himself that were given to the high priest. It did not matter the person, his rank, the prestige of any Israelite, how much money he had, what other office or position he possessed. None of but the priest could perform the duties associated with the tabernacle and later with the temple. We remember that King Saul, Part of his failure and part of his rejection was when he sought to offer sacrifices by himself apart from the ministry of Samuel. Also, we remember that King Uzziah, who was himself a righteous king and commendable in many ways, was rebuked for seeking to offer incense in the temple, a task that was regulated only to the priest. Under the law, all men were required to come to God by means of the high priest. And this included such men as David, as Solomon, as Josiah, as those prophets who were not from the tribe of Levi. All of them must worship God and draw near to God through the ministry of the high priest under their, that system of worship. So in the Old Testament, this teaching is very clear, that it is absolutely necessary for there to be the sacrifice of sins. There must be sacrifice after the entrance of sin into the world. And we'll see this in the book of Hebrews, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So there is the necessity of these sacrifices, but these sacrifices cannot be offered to God directly by sinners, but must be offered to God on behalf of the sinner through the mediation of another, and that is of the high priest. And this was so clearly taught and established in the Old Testament that it is without any dispute. 
Every Jew would know, and the apostle is not proving here the necessity of a high priest. This is already assumed and already known and received by all of them. What he's seeking to prove is that only the person of Jesus Christ can occupy this office so as to bring it to its completion, so that it can actually result in the salvation of sinners. That is what he is proving. Who is the high priest that can actually atone for our sins? Who is the high priest who can make us righteous in the sight of God? Who is the high priest through his ministry that we as sinners can draw near unto God? Will any man do? Are there certain qualifications that must be found in the person of the high priest in order to actually take away the sins of the people and grant to them access to God? And this is what the apostle is proving. It is not only the office that is necessary, but it is also the person who occupies that office. And he is showing that the high priest under the law could never fulfill, they can never accomplish the end for which that office was established. They could never atone for the sins of the people, and they could never perfect the people. And this is because the law appoints men who are weak, who are frail, who are sinful, who are mortal, who are useless as to the perfecting of sinners. But the high priest who takes away our sins, who perfects us, who secures us, the favors and the blessings of God, he must possess certain unalterable, non-negotiable qualities. Qualities that are lacking in all of the high priests who came from Aaron and are only found in one. And this is why even in the Old Testament, there is in the office of high priest as Aaron, there is the anticipation, the need clearly displayed of someone greater who would come and actually do what Aaron could never bring about. So the Old Testament is itself anticipating the abolishment of the priesthood of Aaron and the establishment of a greater priesthood, one after the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what he is teaching us, and this is what we will continue this morning. Hebrews 7.26. Hebrews 7.26 says there, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Here he says, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Here he is showing why it is absolutely necessary, why it is essential, that everything he has said concerning Jesus Christ in contrast to Aaron, why this was fitting or why this is necessary. All that he has said up to this point and all that he will say through the end of the chapter, all of the qualifications that he will mention sets Jesus apart from all others. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest as Jesus Christ. First, it was fitting for God to give to us a high priest like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was God Almighty who determined that sinful men would be redeemed by the ministry of a high priest. God is the one who established this system, who determined that sacrifices for sins were necessary in order to take away our sin, and that these sacrifices must be performed by a high priest. God, in his infinite wisdom, designed a way of redemption, 
a way in which sinful men who were separated from God could be brought near to Him. In God's wisdom, He determined that this would be accomplished through a mediator, through a surety, through a high priest standing in the place of sinners, representing them to God, offering gifts and sacrifices for their sins. God is the one who established this system, who established this order and this way of salvation. And think about and consider all that is necessary for our redemption. Everything that must be accomplished and who it must be accomplished by. This is not the product of human ingenuity. It is not the product of the mind and the imagination of men. But this is something that has originated in the mind of God and is a display of the infinite wisdom that God possesses. For God in His wisdom to design the way for sinful men to be redeemed through the ministry of a high priest and then for God to fail to supply a person who can fulfill this office, who can bring it to its end, who can accomplish the goal for which the priesthood was established, This would not be fitting to the wisdom, the grace, and the goodness of God. So it was fitting for God to supply Jesus Christ as the high priest in order to manifest the unsearchableness of his wisdom and to manifest the bounty of his grace and goodness. God determines the way of salvation according to his wisdom, and then he supplies everything necessary to accomplish that salvation according to his grace. God determined that it would be through a high priest, and then God is the one who supplied the high priest who could actually bring about our redemption. And in this way, it was fitting for God to give Jesus Christ to us as our high priest. It is consistent with his wisdom, with his goodness, and with his grace. So it was fitting for that reason. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, there it says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. There again, it was fitting for God to perfect the author of our salvation through his sufferings. This is what God has determined is consistent with his justice, with his righteousness, with his wisdom, with his grace, and with his goodness. And in the same way, it is fitting for God to determine salvation through the ministry of a high priest, through the offering of a sacrifice for our sins, and it is fitting for God to be the one to supply that high priest and to supply the sacrifice that he would offer to actually take away our sins. Also, it is fitting for us because of the state and condition in which we are in. It is fitting for us as sinners to have a high priest represent us to God, stand as a mediator, stand as a middleman between us and God. Due to the state of sin in which we find ourselves, it is fitting, it is necessary for sinners to have a high priest who can offer a gift and a sacrifice to actually take away their sins. And it is fitting that this high priest meet all of the qualifications that are described in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Again, when we consider what the high priest must do for sinners... He must make atonement for their sins. He must cleanse our conscience from dead works. 
He must secure for us the favor and blessing of God. He must supply to us the spirit of grace. He must help and comfort us in all of life's trials and tribulations. He must preserve us by his own power. He must intercede ceaselessly for us at God's right hand, and he must bestow upon us eternal life. All of these things are necessary if we are going to be saved to the uttermost. We need a high priest who can do all of these things for us. Therefore, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest who can accomplish our full and our final redemption, and it was fitting for God to supply him for us. Again, we did not raise up our own high priest. We did not choose some spectacular man from the mass of creation, from the mass of humanity, and say, this man will represent us to God. This is not the way it works. Who is the one who gave Jesus to us, for us? Who is the one who supplied everything necessary for our salvation? It was God our Father. God raised him up for us. God sent him from heaven to secure our pardon. God gave his own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be our high priest. He and he alone is qualified to discharge this office. He and he alone can deliver us from sin and all of its consequences. He and he alone can bring us into a perfect state of salvation. And if he is lacking in any of these qualities, then he's not able to do this. He would not be able to accomplish these things. And if we look to anyone else who does not have all of the qualities of Jesus Christ, then there is no salvation by that high priest or by that person. We need such a high priest as Jesus Christ, one who is unique from all others, one who is of another order, who is of another kind as those that were provided under the law of Moses. Now, the rest of verse 26 is going to display these essential qualities needed in our high priest. If the high priest is going to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, then these things are non-negotiable. These things must be found in him if he is going to save us. Now, up to this point in Hebrews chapter 7, much of the focus of the contrast and the comparison between Aaron and Jesus has been placed upon the life of each. Aaron and his sons were subject to death, while Jesus has the power of an indestructible life. Therefore, Aaron and his sons possessed a limited, weak, temporary priesthood because all of them were subjected to death, while Jesus possesses a powerful, eternal, perpetual priesthood because he possesses a powerful life, an indestructible life. It was necessary for the high priest to have an indestructible life if he is going to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Now, the rest of this chapter is focusing on his moral purity, his righteousness. This is what he is displaying here. Not only must he have eternal life in himself, not only must he have the power of an indestructible life, but he also must be perfectly righteous. There must be a moral superiority, a moral purity in the person who occupies the office of high priest if he is going to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. 
And this is what the focus of this verse and the rest of the chapter is found upon. It is the moral purity and the moral superiority of Jesus in comparison to those priests who served under the law. And really, these two things go hand in hand. Sin and death always go together. Where there is sin, there necessarily is what? There is always death. That the priest under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, that they died proved that what kind of men were they? They were sinful men. Well, just as death goes with sin, so life always goes with righteousness. That Jesus possesses an indestructible life, that he has eternal life, that he abides forever, proves to us what kind of man was he? Is he a sinful man or is he a righteous and a holy man? He is a holy man. So these things go together. It was necessary that our high priest, not only that he would have eternal life, but that he would have certain personal internal qualities, that he would be perfectly righteous, that he would not have any spot or any stain of sin. It was essential for Jesus to have moral purity, both as the high priest of the new covenant, but also as the sacrifice of the new covenant as well. In both regards, he must be without any spot or stain or blemish of sin. Now, this truth was set forward in the Old Testament, in the law, in various ways, by shadows. Now, concerning the high priest, Exodus 28. Exodus 28, verse 36 that this truth that the high priest who can actually save the people, that he must be holy, this was taught to them under the Old Testament in the Old Covenant by way of shadows, but it never was a reality in the high priest that came from Aaron. And this is why it had to be communicated through these various ceremonies, through these outward rituals, because it was not an internal quality that any of Aaron's or his sons possess. Jesus does not need such outward rituals because he possesses the reality, and the reality itself is sufficient in order to communicate the truth. Exodus chapter 28, verse 36. Here, part of the priestly garb of Aaron. It says, You shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the graving of a seal, holy to the Lord. There, part of the adornment of Aaron was this plate of pure gold that he would wear that declared holy to the Lord. And this was to show that the priest needed to be holy to the Lord. Now, that Aaron had to wear a plate that put this forward is proof that it is an outward ceremony, is an outward reality, but was that an inward reality perfectly with Aaron? Was he perfectly holy to the Lord? No, that's why he had to be dressed up in this way. Did Jesus need to walk around with a plate that said holy to the Lord? No, because his personal qualities, his moral purity displayed this reality, that he was the Holy One of the Lord. Also, Leviticus 21. Leviticus 21, verses 16 to 24. Here, there were various outward defects, 
um, things that would pollute or taint the high priest that would prohibit anyone from Aaron's family from occupying this office, these kinds of outward defects. And these are emblems teaching them the necessity of purity, of wholeness in the office of the high priest. Leviticus 21, verse 16. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generation who has any defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. For no one who has a defect shall approach, a blind man or a lame man or he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb, or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or anyone who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. No man, according to the descendants of Aaron the priest, who has a defect is to come near to offer the Lord's offering by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the food of his God, both of the most holy and the holy, only he shall not go into the veil or come near to my altar because he has a defect, so that he will not profane my sanctuaries, for I the Lord, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel. Here, this also is an outward reality and it's teaching them an inward spiritual truth. What is the defect that prohibits a man from drawing near to God? It's not blindness, it's not being lame, it's not being a dwarf or a hunchback that keeps a man from drawing near to God. It is sin, right? Sin is the problem. And here, it's communicating through these outward ceremonies the necessity that the high priest who offers sacrifices for sin, that he be morally pure, that he be without any of the defects and the defilements of sin. Now, that was not true of Aaron and his sons. And this is why it had to be communicated in these outward rituals, in these various shadows and symbols. Also, not only was the high priest to be free from any defect, also the sacrifice, the sacrifices for sin. Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, there were particular regulations that governed what, which types of sacrifices could be offered there on the altar, and those sacrifices need to be without blemish. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 5. Here, this is the Passover lamb. It says, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So there, an unblemished male lamb that is a year old without any blemish, without any defect. Now, again, these are outward in terms of the appearance, in terms of what was true of the outward constitution of the sacrifices. But in terms of what it's communicating, it is communicating the need to have a pure, spotless, a sinless sacrifice. So the shadows were seen in the qualifications for the priests and for the sacrifices under the law, but none of them obtained the substance. The lamb did not have the substance. The priest of Aaron did not possess the substance. Who and who alone has the substance, the reality of what was taught in these ceremonies and in these outward things? Only our Lord Jesus Christ, as both high priest and as both sacrifice, who is without any stain of sin." This is what must be true of our high priest, and this is what must be true of our sacrifice. It must be sinless, 
perfect, spotless, without any blemish, without any defect or defilement of sin. He must be a perfectly righteous man. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this. It says, You were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. But with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You were purchased by the precious blood of Christ, and Christ was like a lamb without spot or blemish. And in that way, it is he was without any sin. And because he was sinless, then his life, his body, his blood can be offered in the place of sinners. It is necessary that the priest and the sacrifice, and both of them are one and the same in the fulfillment, who is Jesus Christ, that he be both sinless as our high priest and that he be sinless as the sacrifice for our sins. Now, what are the qualities here mentioned in Hebrews 7, 26? The first one is this, holy, right? He must be holy, right? It is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy. Jesus must be holy, and this refers to the internal holiness of Jesus Christ. The holy purity of his nature was the fount and source of all of his righteousness. He never sinned one time. Not in word, not in thought, not in deed. All of his actions, all of his words, every aspect of his life was always perfectly righteous. And the reason is, is because he had a holy nature. His nature was not touched and affected by our sin, by Adam's sin, right? We all have a corrupt nature, but Jesus had a holy and a pure human nature. Luke chapter 1 verse 35. Luke 1, 35. There it says, The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. There he's called the Holy Child. Can that be said of any other child ever born in human history? It's not true of anyone else. Right? There are no other holy children, only our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the only person ever born on this earth who was a holy child, who possessed a holy nature from the womb, a nature unaffected and untouched by our sin. All others, every single one of us here today, right? even the youngest of us, all of us are born with an unholy nature, a nature completely corrupted by sin. And in due time, the little ones, though they may have a form of innocence in that they've not committed actual sins, but give them enough time and what will they all do? Every one of them is going to sin, right? They're all going to sin. And that is because of what? Because of the nature, the unholy nature that they have from the womb. Psalm 51 verse 5. Psalm 51 5. Says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. There, the prophet David is speaking of himself, but what he says is true of himself is also true of all of us as well. It's true of every person born into this world who descends from Adam. And it's true of everyone who has ever walked on this earth with the exception of only one. 
only our Lord Jesus Christ. He was not brought forth in iniquity, and he was not conceived in sin, but rather he was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. What about Aaron? Was Aaron brought forth in iniquity? Was he conceived in sin? Absolutely he was. He possessed a sin nature, a corrupt nature, an unholy nature from the womb as well. And all of his sons had an equal share in that corruption. They were of us as well. They were a common with the rest of the Israelites. All of them had this corrupt nature. And what set them apart as high priests was not their moral purity. It was not their righteousness. It was simply the calling of God. And it was these uh, rites, these rituals of consecration by which God set them apart. But there was nothing in their nature or in their person that was any different than any of the other Israelites. They were corrupt in the same way. Brought forth in iniquity, conceived in sin. All men since the fall, since Genesis chapter 3, every single person born into this world has a polluted, corrupted nature. And it is the unholy nature of man that results in a life of sin and wickedness. This is the source, this is the fount of all of our corruptions. Well, the holy nature of Jesus Christ is the answer, it is the solution to our unholy nature. An unholy sinner needs a holy high priest. They need a holy sacrifice for sins. This is because of what we read Wednesday night in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, where it says, Your eyes are too pure to approve of evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. God cannot look upon evil. God cannot approve of sin. Well, how is God going to receive us on the basis of a high priest if that high priest himself is an evil man? If that high priest himself is not pure, is not sinless, is not spotless? He's not going to receive us into his presence if the one representing us is himself a source of consternation and a source of wrath and anger of God. He cannot approve of sin. Therefore, it is necessary for our high priest, for our representative, for our mediator, for that one that God deals directly with, he must himself be holy. What we do not have in ourselves, we must have in him. And what do we find in Jesus Christ? He does not have an unholy nature, but he is holy. He is acceptable in the sight of God. God can look upon him with favor. God can approve of Christ because of his holiness. Next, the second quality, innocence. Jesus Christ is innocent. He was free from all sin and evil. Therefore, he had no guilt of sin. There was no guilt by which he would come under the condemnation of God. Right? Sin leads to guilt, and guilt leads to condemnation, right? And in terms of the progression in our own experience, it is the unholy nature that leads to sin, that leads to guilt, that results in eternal condemnation. Jesus is free from all of these things. He was innocent. He had no guilt, and he was not deserving of the wrath, of the condemnation, of suffering, and being subjected to death. We, on the other hand, because of our unholy nature, are filled with many sins. We're filled with many evils that we've committed against God. The unholy nature leads to sin. 
And the sin leads to guilt, and the guilt leads to condemnation. Jesus, because he, of his holy nature, never sinned against God. He never transgressed God's holy law. He always perfectly obeyed it. His thoughts, his words, his actions. Always perfect conformity to the righteousness of God. He was free from all sin and evil. Therefore, he was innocent in the sight of God. It says in 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, not one sin. If he committed one sin, even if it was only one sin, would he be qualified to be our high priest? Would he be qualified to be a sacrifice for sins? No, he could not fulfill those roles if he committed even one sin, even the slightest of sins. And this is why the Bible so clearly teaches us that he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. If Jesus were not innocent, then he could not be a high priest who could save us to the uttermost. He could not be a sacrifice who could die in the place of guilty sinners if he himself was a guilty sinner. If he had the guilt of sin, then whose sins does he have to die for? He would have to die for his own sins, and he could not be a substitute for us. This is why none of us can die for each other. I cannot offer myself as a substitute for the sins of one of my sons or one of my children or my wife because I have my own sins. I have my own debt, and I can't even pay my own debt. So if I can't pay my own debt, how can I pay their debt? Or how can I pay anyone else's? If Jesus had guilt of sin, then he could not die in the place of men. But he is innocent. He is without any sin. This is essential for him to properly discharge the office of high priest. And this is why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin. And it is only because he knew no sin that he can then become sin on our behalf. It is his innocence that makes him a suitable candidate to take our guilt upon himself and to suffer the condemnation, the penalty that we deserved because of our sin. It was necessary for him to be holy, and it is necessary for him to be innocent. The third quality, undefiled. Jesus Christ is undefiled. Now, all of these are interrelated, and they're all dealing with righteousness, with his purity, but they all focus on a different aspect or a different component of what those things mean. Jesus was, is undefiled. No pollution, no contamination, no defilement of sin. He was completely free from sin himself and undefiled from his own personal life, nor did he contract any defilement from any other source. No one could make Jesus sinful. No one could defile him with any sin. Morally, he was perfectly pure, clean, sinless, and spotless. He contracted no defilement, neither from his own sin nor from the sins of others. We remember in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, when Isaiah is crying out to God and confessing his own sins, he mentions there not only does he have his own defilements, 
But a part of his corruption and a part of his own defilement is also the people that he lives among. Isaiah 6.5 says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. A part of his defilement was not only his own unclean lips, but also that he lived among a people of unclean lips as well. Well, Jesus lived among a people of unclean lips. Every person he spoke to had unclean lips. Everyone that he interacted with on earth, whether man or woman or child, was a man of unclean lips, was a sinful person. Yet did any of their sin and the defilement of their sin, was it contagious to Jesus? Did he contract himself any defilement from his interactions with them? No, he was completely undefiled. He was preserved in his purity, though he himself lived and talked and spoke with sinners. Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, verses 15 and 16, which again shows us just how filled with sin and corruption we are. Right? Our own sin is bad enough, but also that we can receive defilement from others as well. Right? Just in the fact that we live on this sinful earth, we're covered with filth and things that are noxious to God, and all that Christ does for us to remove this. Leviticus 16, 15 and 16 says, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring his blood inside the veil, and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, and because of their transgressions in regards to all their sins. Thus he shall do for the tent of meetings, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. There, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, is itself something that, at the very least, is morally neutral, right? A tent, wood, right? All the things there, they don't commit sins against God. They're not rational, moral creatures or beings that transgress the law of God. Yet what happened continually to the tent of meetings, to the tabernacle? It would become defiled because of its proximity to the people of Israel. Because it was built and it dwelt among these impure people, then that tent, that tabernacle had itself to be cleansed through these rituals because of the impurities it contracted from the sins of the people. But what about Jesus? He was in constant contact and communion with sinners. He was in contact with many people under the law who would have been a source of defilement to others and to the priest. If a priest came into contact with someone who was unclean, for example, with a leper or with a dead body, he was prohibited from serving in that capacity until he went through a cleansing ritual until that defilement was removed in this symbolic or this ceremonial way. Well, Jesus is in constant contact with lepers, with dead people, right? And with sinners all the time. He had 12 disciples and all of them were sinners and one of them was a devil the whole time. And he spent all of his time in his ministry, this three years, with such people. Before that, the 30 years before, or however many years, he lived in a home, 
with mother and father, with brothers and sisters, with aunts and uncles and cousins and those around him. And all of them were what? All of them were sinners. Yet Jesus never contracted any defilement from them. But actually, the exact opposite would happen with Jesus Christ. When Jesus interacted with those who under the old covenant were a source of defilement to the priest, instead of Jesus becoming defiled by their presence, they would become clean as a result of their interaction with Christ. What happened to the leprosy whenever he interacted with lepers? It would go away. Even what happened to dead, to the dead, they would come back to life. That thing, which was a source of defilement, was removed, it was purified, it was cleansed by interaction with the person of Jesus Christ. His person, his presence, and this is because of his holy nature. The holy nature of Christ was itself a source of cleansing and purifying of those who were unclean. And this is good for us. Because we are all unclean, right? We are very unclean. We are unholy. And how is it that our unholiness does not make Jesus unholy? It doesn't do that. Instead, His holiness makes us holy. And this is what He does for us. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, what He does for His bride, for His body, is to purify us and to take away all of our sins and all the defilements that we have so that we become pure and spotless in the sight of God, holy and blameless. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all glory, having no spot or wrinkle of any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus, through his ministry, through his sacrifice, through his blood, through his high priestly role, through his holy nature, he removes all of the defilements of our sins, and he is the only source that filthy sinners can go to and be purified, be cleansed of all their unrighteousness. Next, the fourth quality, separated from sinners. It is fitting for us to have a high priest who is separated from sinners. Jesus is separated from sinners. Now, he means this in terms of sin, right? All of these attributes have to do with the holiness, the righteousness, the purity of Jesus Christ. He was separated from sinners as sinners in their sins. He was not separated from us as a man. As a man, he was made like us in all things. But here specifically, it's mentioning he separated from us as sinners and in our sins. He was not separated from us in terms of his nature, in terms of his human nature. His human nature was a human nature that is just like ours. But one does not need to be a sinner in order to be a true man, in order to be and to possess a real human nature, it is not essential that a person have sin and have a sin nature. Was Adam a man when he was created in the Garden of Eden? He was a man. He had a human nature. But did he possess sin in his created state? No. So Jesus does not have to take on sin in that he actually becomes a sinner by nature 
in order to be made like us and in order to share a nature and to possess a nature that we have, which is essential, right? We cannot be saved unless Jesus has a human nature and that his human nature is not of another kind than our nature, but one that is like ours in all things except this one in that he is without sin. His nature was not different than ours, but he was preserved from sin. So he was made like us in all things except this one. Hebrews 2.14. Hebrews 2.14. And these, again, are very important doctrines upon which we build our faith and understand our salvation. Both that Jesus had a human nature like ours, but also that he was without any sin. He must be like us in all things except this one. Hebrews 2.14 Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The children, which is us, we have flesh and blood, therefore he had to partake of the same. He had to partake of flesh and blood in order to redeem those who were flesh and blood. And then Hebrews 4.15 Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The human nature of Christ, the sinless nature of Christ, both of them are essential for our salvation. So Jesus was not separated from sinners in terms of his nature. Also, he was not separated from sinners in terms of his interaction. When he was on this earth, when Jesus came to this earth, he did not live on a mountaintop by himself. He did not go live out in the middle of the woods in a cave out in Poto or wherever else. He did not do such things, but he lived among men, right? The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He was constantly interacting with men, right? In those traditions or those groups like the, in the, the monks and the Uh, nuns, you know, in the Roman Catholicism that want to go and separate themselves from the world of men and go live out in a commune somewhere else, it's completely inconsistent with what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did. Because if anyone had a right to be separated from sinners, it was him. And in some regards, he is separated from sinners, but not in regards to his interaction. The word became flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when he says that he was separated from sinners, it doesn't mean that he had a different nature, and it doesn't mean that he never interacted with sinners on this earth. He means it in the sense that he never committed sin. He was separated from sinners in their sin. He had no sin, and in this way, he was not like us. And this is an essential quality for our high priest. What's the whole reason we need a high priest? Because of sin. We need a mediator to stand between us and God to be our representative because of our sin. So he who would serve as the mediator between holy God and sinful man, if he is going to reconcile these two parties, if he's going to bring peace between God and man, then he must be a man, but he also must be separated from sinners. He cannot be like us in the one area that makes his mediation necessary. And what is it that makes it necessary that we have a mediator? It is our sin. 
And this is why he must be not like us in this one area. This is the reason we need a mediator. We need a high priest. So he must be exempt from that uh, fault and from that which makes his office necessary. And this is why he is said here to be separated from sinners. Fifth and final quality of Jesus Christ, exalted above the heavens. Jesus is exalted above the heavens, and he means this as our high priest. He means it after his incarnation, after he took on human flesh. Jesus now is exalted above the heavens. He means it concerning the person of Jesus Christ, the person Jesus Christ who possesses two natures. He is both fully God and fully man in the one person, Jesus Christ. And as the God-man, he is exalted now above the heavens. Of course, as the eternal Son of God, he was always exalted above the heavens. But now he is exalted above the heavens as our Lord Jesus Christ, as our high priest, as the mediator between God and man. When he took on our human nature... He was made for a little while lower than the angels. He took the form of a servant. He came in the likeness of man. He was born of a woman, born under the law. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. So his humiliation or his sufferings, these were necessary for him to discharge the primary part of his priestly office, which is the offering of his body and the shedding of his blood as the sacrifice for sins. It was necessary for the person of Jesus Christ to be made for a little while, for a season. He must be made lower than the angels so that he can render himself a sacrifice for sins so that he can offer his body and die on the cross for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews 2, verse 9. There it says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every one. He had to be made a little lower than the angels, right? This is a necessary part of the fulfillment of the office of high priest for us. This is a part of it, but it's not all of it, right? It is not all of it. In order to fulfill the remaining part of it, it was necessary that after the offering of his body, after the shedding of his blood, after his death on the cross, what must happen then? He must be raised from the dead with the same human nature, not a different body, not a different nature. The same body that was buried, the same human nature that died for our sins and was buried in the grave, that nature must be raised from the dead and must be transformed into a gloriously immortal body, an immortal human nature. And now that body has ascended into heaven where now the person Jesus Christ is exalted above the heavens and sits at the right hand of God as our high priest, both fully God and fully man, always living to make intercession for us. That's where our high priest has to end. He has to be there at the right hand of God. And where is God at? He's in the highest heavens. God is exalted above the heavens. This is the true temple of the Lord. 
We need a high priest serving not in the tabernacle that was made with human hands on this earth. We need a high priest serving in the true tabernacle, the true temple, the one that is not of this creation, ministering in the very presence of God. And because God the Father is exalted above the heavens, then it was necessary that Jesus, our high priest, also be exalted above the heavens so that he could be there ministering, interceding on our behalf. And where do we find Jesus at right now? This is exactly where he's at. He is exalted above the heavens, and now he lives there forever for us to serve on our behalf. That he is exalted above the heavens speaks of two things. First, the place of his ministry. The place where Jesus ministers as high priest for his church is in the highest heavens. It is in the third heavens. Hebrews 4.14. That's what he means by exalted above the heavens. The first heavens, there is the second heaven, and there is the third heaven, the highest heaven, the place where God's presence is supremely known and where he dwells. This is where Jesus Christ is right now. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus has passed through the heavens. This he did visibly and physically when he ascended in the sight of his disciples in Acts chapter 1. He ascended into heaven, and when he ascended into the highest heaven, he passed through the lower heavens. He passed through the first heaven, which is the sky above. He passed through the second heaven, which is the expanse where the sun and moon and stars dwell. And he passed into the third heaven beyond the veil. This is the place where God dwells, where God's presence is so clearly manifested. And that is where he is exalted to now, sitting at the right hand of God. And that is where he continues to perform the function of high priest on behalf of his people. According to Isaiah 57, 15, it says that God dwells in a high and holy place. A high and holy place. Well, if that's where God dwells, and that's where we need to get to, then we have to have a mediator who can bridge that gap. We need a high priest who is exalted to that high and holy place. And this is where Jesus is now performing his ministry for us. So the place of his ministry is exalted above the heavens. Also, exalted above the heavens, also is referring to his person, to the person of Jesus Christ. He is exalted above the heavens. He is crowned with glory and honor. That's what we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, but now he is crowned with glory and honor, and God has bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. He is exalted above all of the heavens. There is nothing in this created world that is superior to Jesus Christ. Is there an angel that has a greater glory than Christ? Is there a man that has a greater glory than Christ? Is there any aspect or component of all of the created order that has more glory and honor than Jesus Christ? No, none of them do. He is exalted above the heavens. And he is exalted there, not only as God, but also as the man, Christ Jesus. And now, one day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And God the Father, it will bring everything in subjection to his Son, Jesus Christ. And here, again, 
the one exalted there, it is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the name that was given to him when? At his birth. He is there exalted with our nature, with our human nature. And that is the hope for our future glory and our future exaltation. Before his incarnation, he was exalted above the heavens as the Son of God. But now he is exalted above the heavens as both Son of God and Son of Man. His human nature has been exalted. This is our confidence in our future glory and in our future exaltation. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49. It says, Just as we have borne the image of the earthy man, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. We will bear his image. Of the earthy man we have borne, but we will bear it one day of the heavenly man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, a few final points of consideration before we conclude today. First, in this passage, we see clearly how insufficient and how weak were those high priests who served under the law, how they were useless to bring sinners to God. If these qualities are necessary for the high priest to possess, and they are necessary, he must be holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. These are essential for the high priest to possess if he's going to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Then it is no wonder that salvation could not be found in Aaron or any of his descendants. They are lacking in every single qualification listed. Which one of them could be said to be holy? Which of them were innocent? Which of them were undefiled? Which of them were separated from sinners? Which of them were exalted above the heavens? Name one of Aaron's sons or descendants that even one of these things is true of. None of them were these, were these true of, not even in the very smallest way could it be said that these things were true of them. So how could they ever save forever those who draw near to God through them? It is impossible. And this is why it is to our benefit and our advantage that Aaron goes away and Jesus Christ rise up in his place because he and he alone is able to save forever those who draw near to God. Secondly, we should fix our faith solely upon Jesus Christ. Everything needed, every quality essential for the high priest to possess, all of them are found in one person alone. And that one person is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the only man who has ever dwelt on this earth, whose feet have ever trod this earth. Right? Consider that. How many people have lived in human history? Even today, in our own day, over 8 billion people are alive right now on planet earth. And of those 8 billion people, how many of them are qualified to be high priests over the house of God? absolutely zero. And then you take that generation after generation after generation, tens of billions of hundreds of billions of people who have lived on the face of the earth, and there's not one single man in all of those people who was qualified to serve as high priest. The entire sea of humanity, and not one can be found who could fulfill this role and bring us near to God. 
only Jesus Christ. Only he can do these things, and he is the one that God has provided. Everything needed for salvation can be found only in him. And this should cause us to be very grateful to God. It should cause us to marvel, to stand amazed, to be in absolute utter awe at the wisdom and love of God found in Jesus Christ. And why would we look to something else to save us? Our own measly works, what good are they? Some other man to stand in the gap between us and God, what good are they? What can they do? Right? And especially those traditions that seek to establish priests, priests on earth who are going to serve on behalf of men and stand between God and man, when none of them have these qualities. So why would we go to some priest on earth? What can they do for us? Absolutely nothing. There's only one who can do anything for us, and it's Jesus Christ. And we should fix our faith solely upon him and him alone as the source of our salvation. And then lastly, we should consider, what is true of Jesus Christ as high priest will ultimately be true of the people that he serves. In our natural state, None of us are holy, none of us are innocent, none of us are undefiled, none of us are separated from sinners, none of us are exalted above the heavens. Even now, in our redemptive state, as believers, these things are beginning to be true in us. They are true of us in part, but are they perfectly true of us? Can any of us say that we're perfectly holy right now? that we're perfectly innocent, that we're perfectly undefiled. There is a sense in which these things are true of us positionally in Jesus Christ, but they're not true of us practically in terms of our own experience. But one day, in the future state, in the life to come, in the glorified state, we will be like Christ. Every single believer in the end will be holy, will be innocent, will be undefiled, will be separated from sinners, and we will all be exalted with Jesus Christ, exalted above the heavens, and all of it because of who? Because of Jesus Christ, only by virtue of faith in him. Because we are connected and we are united to Christ, everything that is true of him in his human nature will also be true of us in our human nature. This is where our renovation will come from. This is where our reformation, our restoration, it is all founded upon what he has done for us. He is our source of hope for a future glory. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We will be like Christ. This is what awaits us as children of God. And if that is the hope that is set before us, if this is what we will become, then we ought to strive for that in this life now. We should strive to live holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted in a sense that our eyes are fixed upon Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, that our mind is set on heavenly things, not on these earthly things. Though we will never attain these things perfectly in this life, if this is what the hope before us is, then we ought to strive for those things in this life now. And that's why in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, after he says that we will be like him because we will see him as he is, he says, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. We ought to seek to purify ourselves now 
just as Jesus is pure, in anticipation and hope of our future purification that will be perfectly accomplished when we see him face to face. This is what is set before us. And this is a hope that can never be taken away from us. No one can take it because our inheritance is kept for us in heaven. Our inheritance, the surety of it, is sitting at the right hand of God. He is exalted above the heavens. And who can go up there and take it away from him? No one. And he's keeping it for us now. It's guarded there waiting for us. And it's just a matter of time until God grants to us all of the glories that have been purchased for us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So then let us run the race with endurance. Let us press on. Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ and never cease to be thankful to God for all that he's done for us through his beloved Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you today. Lord, we, we stand amazed in your presence. Lord, and in the presence of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we see in him the wisdom and power of God for salvation. Lord, we see manifested in, Lord, this topic that we've been considering, the high priestly role of Jesus Christ. Lord, how it manifests to us the wisdom of God. Who but you could design, Lord, such a plan to bring about the salvation of those who had ruined their own souls because of their rebellion against you? Lord, only you could do these things. Only you could determine and establish a way in which sinners could be reconciled to you. And Lord, it also manifests your goodness and your grace. Because this plan that you have established, Lord, everything necessary and essential for the fulfillment and accomplishment of it in our lives, Lord, has been provided by you. Lord, we contribute absolutely nothing, but you have done it all. And so, Lord, we confess that salvation belongs to the Lord. Lord, you are the one who has brought it about. Lord, both objectively in the person of Christ, in his person and in his work, and Lord, subjectively in our own experience. Lord, you are the one who has regenerated us. You are the one who has given to us your spirit. You are the one producing faith and repentance and good works in us even now. Lord, everything that we have has come down from you, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow or variation of change. And so, Father, we thank and praise you for the wisdom, the goodness, the grace that we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that these qualities that were true of him, Lord, we confess it. In every way, we are lacking in these things. Lord, we are not holy. We are not innocent. We are not undefiled. Lord, we are not separated from sinners. We are not exalted above the heavens. Lord, in our sinful state, Lord, we have no right to be called children of God. Lord, we have no right to draw near to you, to have peace with you, Lord, to have the hope of eternal glory. But Lord, we see that Everything that was lacking on our part, Lord, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Lord, that his holiness is an answer to our unholiness. And that, Lord, in all things he was like us, except in this one area, Lord, in which we need atonement. And so, Father, we thank you that 
In terms of his nature, Lord, he took on our flesh in order to redeem those who are under the law. But in terms of our sin, he was innocent and pure so that he might be a suitable high priest and, Lord, an acceptable sacrifice that could be offered in order to take away our sins. Thank you, Father, for graciously sending your Son into the world that we might live through him. And, Lord, we pray that we would never cease to be grateful and thankful for all that you've done for us. Lord, that you would keep these truths into our minds, Lord, so that we not be preoccupied with this present world, but that we might set before us, Lord, those future glories that await us in the life to come. And Lord, as well, that just as we have the hope of a holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, Lord, just as we have that hope that this is what we will be one day, Lord, we pray that we would purify ourselves even now as our Lord Jesus Christ is pure. So, Lord, may you continue to work within us. And, Lord, we pray that this salvation that you have begun, that you would perfect it in us until you bring it to, it, bring it to its completion when we see our Lord and Savior face to face. Lord, we thank and praise you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your love to undeserving sinners. And, Lord, may we worship you, Lord, because of such things, offering to you the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>